good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here with you this morning, uh, but it also feels a little bit bittersweet because this is my last sermon here uh, as a staff member at St. Augustine's. Um, yeah, at least pretend to be sad about that. <laughs> oh. um, but as well as feeling bittersweet, it also I just have this, this feeling of um, kind of unbridled power uh, and freedom. Um, just to say literally anything I want with very little consequences because... What are you going to do, fire me? Um, <laughs> Newt looks very nervous right now. <laughs> no, I'll be very good. I'll be good. Uh, anyway, if you know me well enough, you'll know that um, I take great delight in uh, going to absurd places to see absurd things. Uh, some of the particularly absurd things I've made an effort to see are uh, a mall in China, which is the biggest, uh, the largest building in the world by floor space, complete with an indoor beach ice skating rink, theme park, and dystopian nuclear weapon military parades playing on the world's biggest screen. Uh, a cave with a shrine in it full of sculptures depicting the male appendage. Uh, I did my best to edit this to uh, keep it appropriate. Uh, cheeky wee youth pastor dab in there as well. Uh, one especially absurd place I was excited to visit was a place in Vietnam uh, in the Banar Hills called uh, Sun World. Uh, in the middle of nowhere, you can take one of the longest cable cars in the world, which will take you to a rip-off French-Vietnamese-American Disneyland from Wish, with inexplicably a gargantuan golden bridge being held up by stone hands sticking out the side of a mountain. Uh, Needless to say, this is the perfect amount of ridiculous for me, and I was frothing at the opportunity to uh, visit this holy grail of absurdity. Um, are you ready to see my photos? The cable car? <laughs> the fake Disneyland? And uh, the Golden Hands Bridge? So good. Um, worth the trip. Uh, this morning I, I want to talk about a kind of fogginess. Um, it's a kind of fogginess where we get uh, bogged down and we struggle to see meaning and purpose in life. It's a fogginess that psychologists says, uh, say have defined the last few years and they've named it languishing. In his 2021 article, which was the most read article in the New York Times, uh, psychologist Adam Grant described a collective feeling of languishing felt during the pandemic in the following way. He said, it wasn't burnout, we still had energy. It wasn't depression, we didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. It turns out there's a name for that, languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant motion of 2021. And Grant here was commenting on how people were feeling uh, during the pandemic, but I think this word languishing collects a, uh, describes a collective state that people have been feeling for quite a while now. Studies call the state the massive middle between uh, severe suffering and thriving, between illness and wellness, between uh, despair and joy. Most of us aren't so much in a pit of despair, although I acknowledge that some of us are, but instead the majority of the population is in this massive middle of languishing. 
And what's particularly surprising is that this uh, particular data on the screen here came from before the pandemic. In other words, despite the contemporary commentary on it, languishing isn't just a pandemic thing. It's a cultural mood, and it's been this way for a while. And, and this is what I've encountered in the last decade of my ministry um, to both young people and adults inside and outside the church, is that the kind of things that people are struggling with are things like apathy, a feeling of uh, stagnantness or aimlessness, a feeling of, of um, needing to try and find meaning, uh, feeling like they're on secular cruise control, and feeling like they're kind of muddling through life with an existential fogginess. Psychiatrist Dion Metzger described languishing as the dulling of our emotions. He says, it's not sadness, but a lack of joy. It's a neutral feeling of emptiness. The crisis of languishing is bigger than what COVID has served up to us. It's something I'm constantly encountering in myself and those around me. And I wonder if you have had these moments where you feel a bit like you're spiritually flatlining, uh, you're a bit apathetic towards life, or just stagnant and stuck. A clear example of how languishing is a struggle for so many can be found in the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year released just this week. Did anyone see this? Um, this word's year, uh, word of the year is goblin mode. What is goblin mode? Uh, it's, first of all, it's two words, but um, I, don't, who am I? I don't go to Oxford, so what do I know? Um, but Oxford describes goblin mode as a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations which I just think is a, a very good description of the blues, but um, goblin mode is actually um, when someone just embraces their languishing and turns just a touch feral. Instead of curating an overly curated social media, it embraces the feeling of blah and actually leans into it. A spokesperson from Oxford said about this, given the year we've just experienced, goblin mode resonates with all of us who are feeling just a little bit overwhelmed at this point. And, and what I want to suggest this morning is that what we need uh, in the church and, and for our culture is a wholesale renewal of our theology and our experience of joy. And if you're like me, the word joy ironically probably doesn't excite you. It might conjure up images of uh, happy, clappy Christians embracing a toxic form of positivity disconnected from the realities of life. And I get that, and we're not talking about that this morning. <laughs> also, we uh, need some disclaimers about what joy isn't. Often we confuse joy with pleasure and happiness, but these things are not the same. Christian philosopher Peter Kreft says this, joy is more than happiness, just as happiness is more than pleasure. Pleasure is in the body, Happiness is in the mind and feelings. Joy is deep in the heart, the spirit, the center of the self. One helpful way to think of joy is it like being deeper in a well. At the top, we have human pleasure, which is uh, fleeting and shallow. That's why St. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, no human can live without joy. That is why one deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. Then we have happiness, which is a wee bit deeper, but is often at the whims of our emotions and our state of mind. But joy is the deep wellspring, and the church is to be a community of people who don't just engage with surface experiences, but the deep and meaningful realities of existing in a world where Jesus is Lord. 
Our culture is one that seeks pleasure and happiness, but what we are really unconsciously looking for is something that cracks the surface of the soul. The problem with both the infatuation with pleasure and happiness is that the more we seek it, the more we get the complete opposite thing. This is called the happiness paradox. About a decade ago, uh, a number of studies revealed the irony that the more people focused on happiness, the less likely they were to get it. One of these studies showed that people uh, who valued happiness were significantly more lonely than others in the control group. That we are so unhappy in the West, despite our affluence, has been shown to be connected to our individual pursuits of happiness in the first place. And the happiness industry has become a powerful consumer tool, convincing people that their own happiness lies within their own hands. And all you have to do is read the right book or subscribe to the right course, do what it says, and then you'll find happiness. But this is the happiness paradox. The harder we strive for happiness, the more unattainable it is. Uh, William Bennett wrote this, happiness is like a cat. Great premise. If you try and coax it or call it, it will avoid you. It will never come. But if you pay no attention to it and go about your business, you will find it rubbing against your legs and jumping on your lap. And what Bennett is getting at here is the sense that the more we try and chase and call on the experience of things like happiness, the harder it is to come across the very thing we are chasing after. But the answer isn't quite as Bennett suggests, that we just ignore happiness and hopes, hope that it jumps on our lap. Instead, we need to go to the source. We need to go to the source of joy rather than go after joy itself. What we often do is we focus on the experience instead of being in right relationship with the object or person who gives us that experience. I love how C.S. Lewis, who is the master of, of writing about joy, puts it. He says this, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. True joy, joy that comes from the deep well, is not found by merely trying to muster up happiness for ourselves, but by simply drawing close and trusting that our joy comes from Christ that it's God who really meets our deep longings for joy. Joy comes from our deep longings being met by God instead of trying to meet them ourselves. And only God can meet these deepest longings, and he does a much better job than us or anyone else. And so often we can spend an extremely large portion of our lives orientating our lives towards fulfilling our own desires, that we miss the reality that we don't hold the key, but the God-human Jesus Christ does. So often we get caught up in trying to acquire meaning, significance, status on our own that we have distracted ourselves from the fact that God has actually gifted us these things. This is good news. It means we can give up the relentless quest to make something of our lives. And as we draw close to the source of joy, we realize that all other avenues are dead ends or at least fleeting in contrast compared to the deep joy found in knowing Jesus. And it leaves us with some questions. Where are you looking to to find joy? What part of the well are you drawing from? And are you seeking the experience or are you seeking the source? There's a, um, a really tragic story about a climber, Andy Harris, uh, and he died while trying to climb Mount Everest. 
Uh, he got in trouble and was running out of oxygen, and he radioed for help and expressed his need for more oxygen. Uh, when he heard back from um, help, he was told, if you go to a certain spot, there will be full oxygen tanks that some other climbers have left, and you should be able to use them, which would have been life-saving for him. Uh, so he got to the oxygen tanks and he radioed back, uh, but he was panicking and he told the people on the radio that the tanks were empty. Uh, frustratingly, the people on the radio knew that they were full and that there was no way they could be empty. Uh, Harris was suffering from hypoxia, so he had oxygen deprivation, and in a cruel twist of fate, he had chosen not to use the full oxygen tanks and passed away. And I think the hard thing to hear in the story is that the very thing he was needing was right there in front of him. All he had to do was tap into it. Are you tapping in to the real source of joy, the joy that we actually need, the kind of joy that's only found in knowing Jesus? And in a life that, feels, uh, that can feel aimless, lacking in fulfillment, meaning foggy or just languishing, the answer isn't to settle for pleasure or for happiness. The answer isn't to try and create our own joy, but to tap into the joy that comes from trusting Jesus and the great joy that comes from our deepest longings being met in him. These longings aren't uh, instantly met in the fullness of, life, of this life, uh, but enough to trust the one who does the fulfilling, enough to point to the picture described in Revelation where our desires, longings, and ultimately our quest for joy are met through Jesus, a time where people from every culture and nation are together and they're proclaiming, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne. Salvation doesn't belong to us or the things that we acquire, or the status or reputation that we accumulate for ourselves. Salvation belongs to God, who is seated on the throne. This is good news. In our text, we see every creature on heaven and earth proclaiming blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we hear the way that Jesus comprehensively fulfills our needs. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to, to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We find joy not from pursuing it, but as a consequence of drawing close to the source of joy who meets our deepest desires. And when we do so, we start to see the world in a different light. Instead of plodding, apathetically, languishing, we start to find meaning in everything that we do because we can see that everything we do is attached to eternity because everything we do is part of a deeper and wider scheme. It broadens the vista of life. Christian joy is the gift of meaning in, in a life that can otherwise feel flat and empty. Mundane things are transformed to be a little more miraculous. The joys of this world aren't just happy accidents, um, but intentional, intentional, transcendent, holy moments and experiences created and curated by a loving God and foretaste the fullness of the kingdom of God. Eating a meal, enjoying a sunset, spending time with friends, our work. These are just not activities to pass time, but meaningful parts of the kingdom of God done in his presence. But also, um, suffering takes on new meaning. 
I wonder if you've noticed the passages of Scripture that somehow, somehow suggest that there is the possibility of joy in suffering. How is this possible? It's possible because we know the ending, that life, uh, love, resurrection, hope, and joy win. Revelation gives us a glimpse into the future, and it's good. The end of the story is a good one. This is why the book of Revelation is so powerful. It puts our circumstances into wider perspective. Death doesn't have the final say. Suffering is defeated. God's peace is coming. So yes, we do suffer, but when we suffer, we never suffer in vain because God is making all things new. Therefore, we're never without joy because we're never, a part, we're never not a part of the much greater plan of redemption. This Christmas, my prayer for you is that you would turn and abide in the source of joy, Jesus Christ, that uh, you seek fulfillment in him and not in the shallows of life, that you see life as meaningful and purposeful in light of what has been revealed to us about the future. And may the possibility of joy present itself to you in the midst of whatever suffering you might be going through. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, we look to you. We look to you for all that we need. We trust that you are holding us and that you are guiding us wisely. Help us to live deep and meaningful lives. Help us to draw from the deep well. And we ask that our lives might reflect some semblance of your goodness and kindness in this Christian season. And for this community, I pray that the love of the Lord Jesus draw you to himself. The power of Lord Jesus strengthen you in his service. The joy of the Lord Jesus fill your hearts. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.